Hello and welcome back to the Communique on Lunk Radio, the hour-long roundtable discussion show that all three of you know and love out there on the internet. <laughs> I am your host, Jackson Meredith, and I am joined once again by... Brian. Andrew. Vladimir. And today we kind of want to talk about class, starting with an essay that Andrew has posted to our message board, Conquering the Divide, which you can find very conveniently linked to our homepage at lunkradio.org. This essay is titled, What is Class Struggle Anarchism? It's written by a man named Wayne Price, who is representing the Northeastern Federation of Anarchists and Communists, or NEFAC. Do you want to start with why you felt the need to post this essay to our message board, Andrew? Well, I think this is an important issue to address because we often consider class to be an essential aspect of our position as radical leftists, yet we don't always define why it is an essential position. And I think that expressing that is extremely important. Uh, I think that um, in in the article he talks a lot about um, contrasting uh, class struggle with identity politic groups. We recently did a show on identity politics and why there needs to be more of a more broad focus on the causes of oppression in general rather than just focusing on um, what your particular interest is. You want to back up for a second here, just to define identity politics real quick for anyone who didn't catch that show, which you can find in our archives. Well, identity politics to me basically is where you're you're fighting for a specific cause. You're fighting against a, a specific type of oppression, uh, oppression like um, for instance, racism or, or or feminism, where you're working to have um, equal opportunity and equal rights for women, um, instead of focusing on oppression in general and what conditions cause uh, oppression to be acceptable in society. You no, know, it's called identity politics because it's generally something that affects you or a particular interest of your own. It's your identity. Yeah. For yeah. instance, for in, in, instance, uh, say, uh, gender issues, if you're particularly affected socially by your gender or uh, oppressed in a sense, that's going to be an identity politic for you. In, in other words, a woman who spends all of her political energies working on specifically feminist issues may be engaging in identity politics. In, in my stance to identity politics is that these, these movements, these identi identity politics movements can achieve important things for a group, uh, but I think that if anything meaningful or anything significant is to be achieved that we need to tackle what um, is causing um, these oppre oppressive atmospheres to exist in the first place. Like if, if we only focus on racism, yeah, we, we may better society and, and open people's minds to um, uh, to viewing uh, racism as something negative and something that we should fight against. But, you know, that doesn't do anything to help women or it doesn't do anything to help um, other people that face oppression, um, classism, and things like that. So I think that if, if we really want to live in a just society, we really ha need to have movements that are more broadly focused. So how do you relate that to the article? Well, I think in the article, he's kind of talking about that. I mean, you... I think that you could look at this article and misconstrue it as being another identity politic movement because he's talking about something uh, class, which I think that some people could look at that as an identity politic, but he, he kind of goes over why it's not that in the article because he's talking about how um, class is kind of a more encompassing term. I mean, when there's... In, 
in the working class, which is the the oppressed class, the most oppressed class, the class that that performs most of the the labor for our society, the, the class that doesn't get paid well, the class that often goes without health insurance, and a lot of things that we in the middle class and, and those in the upper class take for granted. Um, we in the middle class? Well, if you were raised in a middle class background. You know, I don't think that we are all in the middle class. but I am certainly not, nor have I ever been of the middle I was, class. I was, I was raised middle class. Um, on my own, I am definitely not middle class because I make uh, you know, less than 25000 a year. So, <laughs> does, does working class, middle class, is there a distinction there just simply based on, on income? Uh, I think that's part of it. Hey, would someone that brings home a six-figure salary be a working-class person? I suppose you could you could say that if they're using, you know, their labor, their mental labor, their physical labor. But um, I'd say it's a lot more complicated than that because the market is is uh, fluid in a sense, depending on where you live, to what the value of your money is. So I don't think you can really do it in terms of monetary abstraction defining class it really doesn't work but to be pulling what's, down a six-figure income typically you have to be a boss or otherwise right. exploiting a lot of people to make that kind of money don't you well you could be a physician or a consultant or something like that i i don't think you necessarily need to be a boss but most often that's what it is it's like a ceo or or a boss that would be making that kind of salary. And middle class is really the what I would consider to be a very vague distinction, probably the most here. Uh, when he's he kind of addresses the middle class as a side point. And I think what's important in this article is somewhat like Brian said, he's addressing identity politics. But what he's really saying is that as radical leftists, we need to recognize class and build a bridge to different issues and show the universal value that class is inherently connected to all forms of oppression. I, I was sort of gathering, I mean, one of the main important points that, that Price is making in the essay is that class, class analysis is really one of the defining issues of the radical left, as opposed to, you know, more of the, the liberal left and sort of middle class activists who have more of an identity politics focus. I think, I mean, one of the main points that he, he uh, states in the essay is that um, class struggle is important because the working class as a group is the only is the only class that has the ability to actually create change. I mean, we're not going to see significant radical change being brought about by identity politic groups because because they cannot shut down production they cannot uh they don't have the power that that the working class has because they do really mm-hmm. have uh you know, you know they they do all the production so not, they can not, strike not only not only uh, power to to restructure the society but uh, also the incentive. Working class is the only one who has incentive to, to restructure the society. That's the major point. And uh, working class structure in price in, in, in Wayne, Wayne Price's opinion uh, should be an umbrella actually for all the other forms of struggles, racial oppression against racial oppression, gender question, etc., etc. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at racial groups, um, they're primar- like the minority racial groups are primarily working class. So I mean. Yeah. A working per- class. Particularly, mm-hmm. I mean, black and brown workers are often. Mm-hmm. The most exploited, the lowest paid, yeah. the le- lowest in power, first to be fired, last to be hired. 
And that's why I was talking about building bridges between the class issue and the other and these other identity politics issues because he he specifically says in here that uh, we need to all understand why different forms of oppression are tied to class. Now, obviously, people are exploited and people are disenfranchised on various identity issues, but that really comes back to class as the fundamental method of of exploiting and disempowering people. I mean, you can't you don't use someone's skin color against them. You use the monetary economic system to take advantage of them by the label of racism. He's really talking about um, the economic system and class being the system that these forms of oppression ride on, is what I would say. I think we should talk about more defining what we mean by class, because uh, what, what would you guys consider working class? To me, it's anyone who has to, in order to survive, in order to pay for food and medical care, etc., they have to sell their time, their labor, um, either physical or, or mind or, or mental work to uh, to make a living, to, to have the necessities of life. I'll go to the text here where Price says, uh, we workers lacking land or machines must sell ourselves to the capitalists. He's talking about that the working class is people that must sell their labor to uh, persist. And he goes into a broader definition where he says the working class as a class is broader than immediately employed wage workers. It includes unemployed workers and retired workers. Uh, besides employed women, it includes women homemakers, married to male workers, and their children as a whole class, uh, counterposed to another class. And it's interesting he included a term here that I don't believe I've ever heard of, uh, pink-collar workers, which are women that are working within the household uh, in in a working class. Pink-collar is often also used for job areas like secretary work that are typically reserved for women. Yeah. So, so you guys wouldn't necessarily define class as being something that is defined by how much money someone makes, but rather the type of work that they do or the position that they, they, uh, the position they're in when they're working. I would use as a basis for defining the class, I would use its relationship with the means of, of, of production. First, that was Marx's attitude, of course. First of yes. all, which would then imply that anyone not exploiting other people's work or labor is part of the exploited. Yes, is part of exploited. Is a is a manager of a of a small business, let's say like a uh, a publishing business. A, a, is a manager a member of the working class? Yes, he is, but he's not aware of it. Yes, he strongly believes he he he's. The ruling one. Yeah. He did specifically talk about that point in there. He said uh, there's also what is usually called the middle class. This is typically regarded as including better-off workers, white-collar workers and skilled workers, independent professionals, small business people, and lower levels of management. These middle layers are not really an independent class. Mostly they are part of two main classes, capitalist and working class, and they usually orient towards one or the other. Well, that's sort of what I'm talking about. I that's the way I tend to see it. Um, I see the middle class as not necessarily belonging to either group, uh, being the upper class or, or the working class, but uh, just uh, being part of the working class, but a little better off. And that's kind of my upbringing. But you know, once I've, I mean, on my own, I, I'm definitely not middle class because I'm not very well off. I, I want to back up just a little bit. I, I have some of I have some problem with the way the author is using white collar as sort of synonymous with privileged. I mean the traditional definitions of blue collar, white collar, 
Blue collar is manufacturing. White collar is service work. Now, I mean, I think most workers in the United States now are employed in service work rather than manufacturing. I mean, really, by that traditional definition, I'm actually a white-collar worker as a dishwasher. I'm not manufacturing anything. There's a lot of low-paid, no-skill, white-collar work out there. And that model is, is sort of antiquated, especially what, what little remains of manufacturing work is often unionized and pays much better than a lot of the menial white-collar work out is, there. Is that the traditionally accepted definition of it? Because when I think... You know, personally, I've never, I've never really given it that much thought, but I've always thought of blue collar as someone who's doing more physical labor, um, and I thought of white collar as being more desk job, more uh, mental work. And that's the idea of more of a service institution, yeah. whereas blue collar work is more of manufacturing. But I, I, I mean, personally, I'd consider dishwashing or anything that's involving labor of that sort to be a, a blue collar. We have illustrations in history. Or which show that there is actually no strict distinction between blue-collar blue and, and, and uh, white-collar labor or worker. Paris Commune, for instance. Both blue-collar and uh, 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 petit bourgeois white-collar workers, they had the same interest in, in, in those times. They were on the same side against against the rulers, the big capital. And I, I but, think, sorry, uh, 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 just to finish. But I believe precisely because of that experience and because of that threat by uh, uh, widening, uh, 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 actually, uh, 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 working class being more inclusive. That's precisely what uh, uh, capitalist uh, uh, societies fought against through through the history, and they are actually with, who imposed that frame uh, uh, with distinction be between blue blue collar and white collar work. And I think Price makes the distinction in the essay too, talking about how the working class can be very easily split up, be set against itself. And one of the quickest and most common examples you'll point out of that is always when better paid workers can be bought off. Right. And I don't want to walk away from the middle class just yet. It is kind of a gray area. I would say that it's basically a more affluent, better off working class would be a, a general, a more privileged working class. And a lot of times the middle class uh, would like to, I would say, claim rights to being part of the ruling class. It's, uh, it's definitely a stepping stone, but it's pointed to as a sense of achievement. It's sort of a propagandistically valuable class. Now, obviously, I mean, the, the, the idea of a middle class is sort of a gray area, and there's a, there's a thousand different definitions of it. To, on, on the subject here, one of the more relevant definitions of a middle class that I've seen is the idea that they precisely are some of the better paid, more privileged members of the working class, people who have sold out in exchange for some of the crumbs from the master's table. And I would say, uh, like, like you said, it definitely points to privilege, and it keeps... it's known as a barrier between the working class a buffer and a class. buffer class between the working and the ruling class we have a good illustration sorry for interrupting you no, go ahead we have a good illustration these days for instance in these these uh, uh, harsh times uh, university professors more and more of them not being tenured but hired as a part-time jobbers and adjunct professors. And yes. Uh, being pushed actually into the same position blue-collar laborers are for, for, for ages. You know? And that's, in my opinion, that proves that actually both blue-collar and white-collar workers are the same unique class. And that this distinction between the two of them is imposed by manipulation. You have, uh, just, just, just to, to finish, 
how, how successful this indoctrination was in this society is that you have two actually opposing but mutually supporting concepts. This is a classless society, or this is a society with a, 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 a working class and white-collar class, middle class. And I would uh, sort of agree and disagree with Jackson there that the middle class is somewhat a privileged class. I don't know whether I universally say people sell out to get into the middle class, though I'd say that's extremely common. I do think the middle class is somewhat of a, a, of a war zone when it comes to uh, class conflict, uh, because the ruling class is always looking to take a larger slice of the pie, and that often means uh, uh, downsizing the middle class. I mean, the people in the middle class are often the most fanatical defenders of this class system because if they aren't, they don't have to stay in the middle class. They can slide back into the rabble with the rest of us. On the other hand, it's extremely hard to climb into the ruling class. Well, I, th I think that uh, you know the middle class is there, and they kind of feel like you know they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they've achieved this this um, some some sort of comfort, and uh, they kind of feel you know if I did it, why can't anyone else do it? Why can't everyone else do it? But but they I guess what they don't really understand is that our society needs a working class. It needs those on the bottom to support the two upper levels. We can't, if we don't have people to perform uh, the, 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 the lower paid, low paying work, mm -hmm. then we, there would be, capitalism wouldn't work that way. I mean, and here's the, here's the thing to me. I think one of the quintessential middle class professions from where I'm sitting are, is low-level management. The guys who don't necessarily make all the money, they don't necessarily get a very big cut of the profits in the enterprise, but I, I have a background in food service, and I think about restaurant managers, I mean, many of whom work 50, 60-hour weeks. That's just expected. Now, obviously, if that person can enjoy a state of privilege by, by killing themselves at work 60 hours a week, the flip side of that coin is there's probably at least one person who is out of a job because that manager is working two positions, essentially, is doing yeah. a double shift. And we've addressed this before, that there is a certain amount of privilege you can get if you devote your entire life to the system. And uh, people can, or the people that make it into the middle class are likely going to be more people of that, of that ilk. I mean, the, the flip side of this coin again, for every overachieving, workaholic, middle-classer enjoying a little bit of privilege, there is someone in the ranks of the unemployed who could have a job if this person, if this manager actually worked reasonable hours every week. And that's, that goes into overworking some people so you can have a larger pool of unemployed labor, the you know the army of the unemployed, the reserve army of labor, as it's been called. And obviously, as long as there are people in that reserve army, there will be plenty of people who will feel the pressure to work that 60-hour week, lest they become part of the reserve army. And there's one thing I want to note real quick before I move back to a point that Brian made, that there are sort of intellectual workers. You talk about professors and people in education, and I would say that they're more likely have higher privilege because they are on the front line of reinforcing the indoctrination that the ruling class needs to survive. Uh, you want people who are going to be holding your party line to be privileged. And I want to quickly go back to a point Brian made. Uh, he was talking about the idea of achievement where someone in the middle class will feel that they've made a great measure of achievement by being educated, by putting this forth, yet at the same time they'll say anyone can do it. That sort of idea of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, those are entirely exclusive ways of thinking. They don't make sense together, yet they're packaged as an ideology. Either it's a great achievement and you've done a great deal as a person, and it's hard to do, or anyone can do it. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm a great person for doing this and anyone can do it. It doesn't make sense. I, I don't remember if he really talks that much about the middle class in the essay, but my personal opinion is that 
our our goal obviously is for a classless society, a society where there's not these sharp divisions, and uh, I, an, an authentically classless society, yeah. not the uh, supposedly classless society that this is. Or, or the classless society of, uh, let's say, Soviet communism, where there was the uh, the new ruling class of the uh, the commissars. The, yeah, the leading the leaders of the communist party, which pretty much created a sort of state capitalism where they just exploited the work of everyone. But um, I think in order to achieve a classless society, one of the main goals should be organizing the working class and then also reaching out and organizing the the middle class and helping them to recognize that they're also a part of this this class that's being exploited and to um show them that you know they're this will be of benefit to them because they're also they're selling their labor and they're they're working long hours and and things like that and in in a in a society without classes I mean, what we're talking about is transforming the way society works so people don't have to give a large portion of their lives away to an employer where you're not working 40 hours a week, where, where you're working to provide for human needs instead of for profits for people that already have enough. I think there's an important aspect of what you somewhat mentioned, that the middle class functions, like Jackson said, as a buffer to create this sort of concept of a gradient, that there is mobility in society, when the reality is it's a rigid tier system. There is a, a middle class, a certain level of privilege that you can have. There is a lo the lower part of the working class. Then there is these people that are above it all in the ruling class that have more resources, more networking capabilities, and more education than anyone else is allowed. And right. it's, not, it's not gradated. It's in rigid tiers. Yeah, I, somebody did say that you know the middle class. That's where most of the the support of this system that we live under. That's where most of it comes from, is from these people that uh, think that anybody can achieve you know this level of comfort that they've achieved. And in truth, the ruling class relies on the middle class in that sense. They can't really speak from for themselves. Uh, very authentically. Now, Bill Gates can come out and say that anyone can be like him, but there's a certain level of disbelief on that when someone from the ruling class says that. But truthfully, a lot of the people in the ruling class aren't as visible as Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a very visible member of the ruling class because he's new to the club. He's first generation. New blood. You know, you know, you're talking about the ruling class. There's one of the old distinctions, which is kind of interesting, the idea of old money versus new money. One of the biggest things, one of the biggest forms of privilege enjoyed by people in the ruling class who've been of the ruling class for generations is that they're privileged enough to not have to give a damn about any of this mortal coil business. I mean, they're what has also been termed as a leisure class. I mean, they're just partying for a living. Living. <laughs> It's really, it's the middle class. Like the Paris Hilton? Mm. The, yeah, the, you know, the jet-setting heiress is like Paris Hilton. But, I mean, the people who are really doing the work and really carrying the ideological flag for this system are the middle class middle managers and the new members to the vanguard like Bill Gates. And they basically are just toadies to the ruling class in an attempt to better themselves. Because it does work in a sense. It does keep them in the middle class. Well, I, I think if you, if you want to achieve that level of comfort that the middle class affords, I think you really have to have this, this personality of being a penny pincher. In that, you know, with hard work we can achieve this. And, and uh, you know, working the extra hours, really being... Uh, uh, kissing ass at work and, and trying to climb that ladder. Well, and it's, it's a form of self-sacrifice to an almost farcical, psychotic degree. I mean, if you look at the working class in America, these are the people that are pulling the longest hours. And uh, really, I mean, these are uh, people that um, are supporting, I would say, mostly the Republican Party, mm -hmm. the, the middle class. 
Although it should be noted that first-generation billionaires Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are both registered adamant Democrats. Really? Yes. <laughs> I w- there is another in- interesting information piece of data I, I, I dug on, on the web two or three years ago. <laughs> uh, as long as I can remember, on AARP website, it was stated that 57% of baby boomers strongly believe this country needs at least a third political party, mm. at least one more, which I believe uh, shows that uh, middle class is not necessarily pro-Republican or conservative or even uh, reactionary. I think I think we're getting into a subject for another show, but I think maybe we should touch on a little bit yeah. whether the Democratic Party does have the interests of the working class in mind. I, I would just say very quickly two things. We're already at the halfway point of this show. I play timekeeper here, by the way. Se- and second of all, I mean, the baby boomers aren't necessarily synonymous with being middle class. Baby boomers is simply a generation of people. Obviously, a lot of them are working class. I know, but uh, they were actually the first generation enjoying that vertical mobility in this mm-hmm. society. And a uh, large part of them moved vertically into the middle class by today's definition of the middle class. And I wanted to go back. I believe Jackson wanted to make a point when I talked about the... Ed- education aspect of the middle class, the middle class that's involved in education. Do you have a point to make on that? Uh, No, not really. Okay. I did have a question. I want to try to take this all the way back to the beginning because we sidetracked, sidetracked, sidetracked away from everything from the beginning. But really, again, one of the defining attributes of the radical left in Price's estimation, and I would say he's correct about it, is that class analysis is really the key. It's really what separates us from the liberals, I think. Now, the question is, why do so many on the left reject a class analysis? And what is motivating them? I have a simple question here uh, as a matter of definition first. In the first paragraph, he says, there are many many, uh, liberals and radicals who completely reject class struggle. Now, can you even consider someone a radical if they reject a uh, class? What about a radical feminist? Well, a radical feminist is a different term altogether, defining someone on feminism. What about a radical libertarian? <laughs> yeah. I would, I would say they, they reject class. Certain class is against their yeah. concept. Of <laughs> well, they're for class. That's what they want. They think that... Uh, People deserve to be in... It's kind of like a caste system. And, and they, you know, capitalists, libertarian party capitalists, I mean, they certainly are of the belief that you deserve to be in the class that you're in. You know, you, you don't make that much money because you're not as hard of a worker as I am. It's kind of this, this idea of a meritocracy where, you know, you get what you put into it. it the harder you work, the more money you're going to have, which is obviously fallacious because some of the hardest working people in our society are the lowest paid and um, I, I just think that their whole way of thinking is flawed. That's the same way in all the societies of the world, not only in this society. Yeah. Did we kind of wander away from your question, Jackson? We, we did <laughs> sort of wander away from my question, but that tends to Let's, happen and I'm kind of okay with that. If I may, I'll sort of offer an answer to my own question. Again, the question, how can so many on the left reject the idea of class analysis? Another point that was made later in Price's essay, he didn't really connect the dots very well, I don't know, but you know, he, he mentions how the left itself is dominated by the middle class. I mean, a lot of the people who have the... It makes sense when you think about it. I mean, a lot of the people who have the most time and the most energy and education and the most education to get involved on the left tend to be exercising a degree of privilege and this is this has been true basically forever i mean certainly i mean people wonder why the the russian revolution had an elitist character to it but 
Most of the Bolsheviks were merely disgruntled members of the aristocracy. They were sort of the rebellious children of the aristocracy. I have to make somewhat of a distinction here. Now, I think there's sort of a, of a truthful aspect to this and also an illusionary aspect because really the middle class is more privileged. Now, being more privileged, they also have more access to the media. Now, that means that they have more representation than people in the working class. If you're in the working, the lower working class, you're also less likely to be seen and to be heard. But still, I mean, generally, though, these, these middle class activists tend to occupy most of the leadership positions in most of the established activist groups. That is well beyond dispute. I do think that... To a large extent, if you have that form of social privilege, you're more likely to get those positions when they open up. Right. I mean, obviously, a lot of these NGOs hire people who have college degrees, and in this society, having a college degree requires a degree of privilege, too. And even to a large extent, among the left, you can be seen as more respectable if you come from a middle-class background. Uh, I, I just, a couple things come to mind for me. I think that... Um, you know, there's this trend within within the left of what is commonly called lifestyleism, where you know people don't necessarily focus on changing society or creating a movement that will change society, but focus on their own lifestyle and leading a sort of radical or revolutionary lifestyle, where uh, you know maybe they uh, they'll only consume um, you know products that were mm from free uh free trade or fair trade fair sorry trade. and um you know only consume products where their labor rights were insured and things like that or or maybe they're freegans where they dumpster their food or 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 just kind of be non-consumerist and i think the main problems with that sort of approach is that it's 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 focusing on yourself and it's not doing anything to liberate all these people that are being oppressed and are really dying under this system. So, I, I mean, that's that's sort of a, a kind of defeatist way of... I, I'm sorry, just what, how did you jump to, to lifestyleism? Well, I, the, I was kind of answering, the connection? answering your question of why on the left there's this, uh, this sort of ignorance of class struggle and why it's not really emphasized by everyone on the left. And... I don't see it being emphasized by those that kind of stress lifestyle. I that. do think that somewhat goes into his point when he's talking about uh, the, the left being co-opted by capitalism. Now, that sort of uh, uh, individual sort of mentality is, is kind of what we talked about in our last show about environmentalism. It's voting with your dollar, being essentially in, in uh, boycotting the system you are voting with your dollar. You are being a part of the system by making your voice heard. You're not uh, trying to large-scale affect it. You're simply doing it on a consumerist scale. I, w I would also sort of say, I mean, in, in a way, lifestyleism is kind of a parallel thought, really, to that middle-class mindset, this idea of you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not about changing the society. It's just, you know, if, if I want to... Do a, make a difference for the environment. I just need to fill my house with compact fluorescent light bulbs. <laughs> I can just I can make the difference, and everyone else can make the difference with me because it's very easy to do. And we'll all just do it. We'll all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we'll all get compact fluorescent light bulbs. And well, yeah. I would say, well, I would say there is a, a historical reason also, which is the loss of, of the labor base, basis in, 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 in post-industrial industrialized societies like the United States of America. Uh, there's less and less laborers in this society. More and more middle class, quote, unquote, uh, 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 leftists, mm. which... They lost touch with labor labor movements, and the labor movement movement in itself is reduced to to, to its minimum. Mm. 
outsourcing, etc., etc., change of technologies, and so on. It all, all had an impact, direct impact on, on the size of, of critical mass for, for a, a revolutionary change in, in this society. So I wouldn't identify that problem primarily and only as a problem of class awareness of the middle class. It is a problem in itself, of course. But I would say even more important contribution to, to, to that loss of class awareness was caused by the reduction of the critical mass in, in the society. I think you bring up an interesting point. This is kind of going back to the the co-optation of of these people into capitalism, and what it kind you're kind of making me think of is the brain drain aspect, where you have people that live in impoverished conditions, but they're offered more of a middle class, more of an affluent position if they get educated and move away, and essentially they're taking resources away from people who need it. They're they're intellectually draining their community and there is this segregation of class that continues and you sort of dangle that carrot above people and in order to move up they have to abandon people like jackson said they have to basically betray their own people to become a part of the middle class they have to represent ruling class interests i have an illustration from germany it's very pertinent in this moment uh, we bought we bought a, a large amount of equipment from, from a German co company and uh, our intention was of course to, to test that equipment on the spot in the shortest po possible time which meant our intention was to work overnight and the following day to pack, to wrap up all, all, all the equipment we bought and to leave Germany back to the country we came from. But, at five o'clock sharp, two of the guys from that company came to us and politely asked us to leave the premises. Because? Because union they belong to protects their interests. No cause, no reason can ask you, impose on you leaving after hours to work. Why I'm saying this illustration, how strong that class awareness in, in, Germany, in Germany is, as opposed to lack of it here in the United States. Unionization is, loss of union, unionization in the United States is one of big causes of loss of that class awareness in the United mm. States. He made in 50s, sorry, in, in, in 50s, 33-34% uh, of uh, uh, laborers were unionized in, in private businesses. Now it's reduced to 8%. Hey, it's a catastrophe. Right. Mm -hmm. He actually, in the first paragraph, uh, was talking about people denouncing unions. And I, I do think there is kind of a, of a lack of push on the left for uh, uniting the workers in a large sense. What I was kind of going to move into here was a point he made, the emancipation of the working class must be conquered by the working class themselves. A strong union is defined by a sense of solidarity between the workers themselves. Going back to what Jackson had asked earlier, why, why on the left there is a trend to kind of ignore class struggle, I, one of the other reasons I was thinking of was sort of this idea of being a vanguard movement, those those on the, the intellectual side uh, just kind of thinking that they can um, create a movement without the working class. Um, if, they, if they get enough people to achieve this, this sort of consciousness, then, um, you know, they can, they can tackle it alone and they can just kind of tell the working class what they need to do. But in reality, if, if a revolution, any sort of social change is to be effective, the people on the bottom, those that make up the, the majority, the large base, they need to be the ones that, uh, 
that uh, become aware of their their uh, explo- exploitation, and they need to be the ones that um, want a change in society, and because they are the only ones that can bring it bring it about. And I think a lot of the language that the left uses is really anachronistic. I mean, you hear things talking, uh, hear talk about uh, means of production and things like that. I mean, a lot of this is old 19th century, you know, literature being regurgitated, and it's just not, it doesn't make any sense. It's not relevant to people who are in food service work or people that are, you know, telemarketers. I mean, that's the working class of today. We're not talking about people. I'm going to disagree with you on means of production. I've never heard a term that works for that. I mean, other than saying an entire paragraph, how do you explain the means of production? I, if you're going to address something on a higher level, you have to say means of production. What else would you say? I would say, in Brian's defense, actually, that a lot of people, a lot of leftists, a lot of, basically a lot of 19th century mindset Marxists out there, if you, I mean, means of production is bandied about quite a bit. A lot of these folks, if you ask them what they mean by means of production are immediately going to jump into factory labor. Mm-hmm. They're still... Their conception of the means of production... Means of production is, is, is a valid concept, but their conception of it, when you ask them for a definition of it, immediately jumps right back into Victorian mm-hmm. England. Well, the means of production, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they're reading this stuff, they're like, what the hell is the means of production? And we're not working in factories here. I mean, the means of production today could be those that own... The, the food service restaurant, those that own uh, the hospital, the, the, the whatever it the may media, be. Anything. I mean, the, the means of production is is what is needed to bring in, or to produce things for society, whether it be goods or services. I do think there is a value in radical language, and means of production to me is something that's extremely valuable. I don't know that there are any other terms that we have to express what means of production actually means. Because there is a certain leap that people have to make into learning an amount of radical language. Things The radical language exists to express. Now, you can explain things to people in a simple way, but there is a certain amount of language that people have to learn if they want to understand something. Just like if you were trying to understand how anything else works, there's a body of vocabulary you have to learn. Is there a bit of an elitist assumption in there, though, where you expect, you know, Joe Sixpack of the working class to, 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 to study and memorize your glossary of political definitions before he can understand a damn word you're saying I mean, a politically. Lot, a lot of people just don't really have a desire to immerse themselves in, in a, a totally kind of alien, uh, what they would consider to be an ideology. I mean, they. I mean, I think if we're ever going to be effective, it needs to be broken down into language that everyone understands and that everyone can relate to. I mean, if you're, if you're saying that, you know, you you people of the working class need to get democratic control of your means of production. I mean, that means you've just said a bunch of garbage. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. It's a propaganda line is practically what it is. I think means of production to me is an extremely important thing, but when addressing people, I wouldn't even call someone working class because most people don't even understand what that means. Well, I agree with this problem of vocabulary, terminology we use to, to identify everything involved in, in this social struggle through ages. Uh, but I do agree that uh, this expression, this uh, uh, syntagma, means of production, is irreplaceable. I, w- I, I wouldn't... I can't think of any, any, any other substitute for, for that. Although I myself, I have to emphasize again, I myself am against that 19th century vocabulary myself. I think maybe focusing more on talking about those who have ownership and those that don't really own. Um, if you're talking to if you're talking mm-hmm. to workers in, um, say, a hospital, for example, I mean those that are working in the hospital um, in relation to those who actually own the hospital which isn't even necessarily the board of directors of the hospital, but those that uh, funded it. Stakeholders. Yeah, 
those those stockholders stockholders yeah, yeah th- no. those people are the owners those i mean that's the means of production and i think that uh if you want to unionize if you want to bring about uh change within the hospital uh democratic control and things like that you have mm-hmm. to talk to people in in terms that are really relevant to their situation i think that's even a greater problem than the language is speaking to people in ways that are relevant to their lives. And that's kind of what you're going back, talking to, uh, talking in terms of ancient industry and antiquated terms. It doesn't mean anything to people. People aren't working in factories and, and that sort of thing. Well, they are, but it's, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are still working in factories, and maybe that would make sense to them, but I, I think we're seeing a lot of the working class employed in jobs that, yeah, jobs that, you know, weren't even heard of in Marx's time. And, um, I think that if he was around today, he would, he would probably stress that we do need to escape this kind of trap of old terminology and kind of make it relevant for what today is. I, I do want to go back to price very quickly while we still have some time. I mean, there is, there is something, there is really quite an irony to it where he is, very passionate and very strongly against this kind of middle-class, elitist domination of the left wing, and yet trying to work your way through his 10-page essay essentially requires you to be exactly one of those privileged, middle-class, college-educated radicals just to understand the terminology he's using. Yeah, so he, he kind of seems to contradict himself when he's he's talking about um, appealing to the working class or, or connecting to the working class, but he again he's using terms that that most of the working class isn't isn't going to recognize or understand, and it's, I just I thought it was kind of odd that he didn't mention something about that in the essay, but I I think that um, a lot of people are really ignorant to that. I mean, it's it's a tough. We're coming up here on what's well, a it's a very difficult position, a very difficult chasm we need to try to navigate here. Where you know, on the one side we have terminology that's existed for a hundred years as maybe the best ways of expressing these left wing ideas to date, but to cross that chasm, you need to have past a couple of 200-level political science classes, and a lot of the people we need to express this message to are never going to have that opportunity. And the way I like to say this is you can express something so succinctly, so esoterically, that no one really understands it. Express your point so perfectly that no one will get it. Well, that's that's the advantage of using uh, this sort of intellectual language is that... um, I mean, it's hard to break something down like um, like means of production into something that uh, your average person with an average education would, would understand. Um, Not only that, but we have a soundbite culture. I mean, to express means of production in fully, I would want at least a paragraph. Now, in, in just saying it, it would take a few sentences to explain what that means to someone. And when you extrapolate that, to your entire point, it's a lot of explanation. It's a lot of talking to someone, and I think that it is kind of uh, is kind of a shortcut that we can't take to not explain things to people. To say it in language that people don't even understand, there's no point. Well, I will go back to to uh, Price's worries about middle class defining defining the left. Mm-hmm. Or I wouldn't worry about who defines the left. Times are changing, social structures are changing. Uh, so, of course, the middle class, uh, the left today, compared to the left 100 or 150 years ago, is something different. I would worry more about how they define the left. Not who defines the left, but how. And who is a, they? A, a, a middle class as a, 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 a social layer who, who misdefines the left in, in, in this society. Uh, 
But uh, I remember, I recall, for instance, on occasions like this one, I recall that uh, Engels himself was a, a rotten capitalist. Sorry, who? Engels. 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 Yeah. Uh, he himself was a capitalist. And he, he defined, together with Marx, defined everything we, we're talking about today. I, th I think um, I'm going to agree and disagree with you in a sense that inherently we're talking about identity politics and we're talking about the identity of the middle class is going to be inherent in how they define leftism if they're talking from their own experience and position. I mean, um, what, what is it? Uh, being determines consciousness is a, is a phrase that Marx used. And I think that's true, that their consciousness is going to express their experience as the middle class. Yes, but what you said implies, on the other side, that middle class lacks uh, 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 analytical skills. They are defined by their social position, they have their own prejudices, and accordingly they define the left. I wouldn't agree, simply because we assume that anyone being on the left analyzes society. And a, 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 a true analysis, actual analysis, uh, 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 inevitably shows the middle class themselves, the members of middle class on, on, on the left, shows them what the real root problems of this society are. And I have to repeat, I wouldn't worry so much about who's on the left, but how they define the problems. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, for social change to happen, like he pointed out in the essay, there does need to be working class awareness, working class consciousness, and I don't think that anything will be successful, any social change movement will be successful without the working class behind that movement. And I think if you look to some of these failed movements, if you look at the, like the Bolsheviks in, in, in Russia, if you look at why, why what they called communism in Russia, why it turned into some author, authoritarian nightmare, nightmare why, yeah. it, why it completely failed for me is because they did not have the consciousness of the working class. They didn't have the working class behind them. The working class wasn't forming a democracy and really uh, controlling this this movement. And they weren't... Uh, it, the, it wasn't in the people's interest. It, it turned... What happened is is that this, this, this group of elitists, this intelligentsia uh, intellectuals, they... They molded society as they wanted it, and they became the new rulers. And it turned out that a movement that could have had hope, it turned into where uh, the the old rulers that were that were deposed were replaced by new, uh, new rulers that turned out to be just as bad because their power corrupted them. I think this comes back to education here, where you have an educated middle class that thinks that it knows best and you don't prioritize educating the working class and fundamentally they're not educated or involved to begin with. So it becomes a middle class endeavor here. And I see parallels in our society that that would point to something like this happening. Now on the left where you have these people who have this belief in critical mass or that something horrible has to happen for change to happen. Now what do you get when there's a critical mass? You get a vanguardist movement because people become so desperate that they look to someone who's educated, who has a prepackaged solution for them. And when people are that desperate, they'll go along with something. That's not, that's not a consciousness. That's not thinking for yourself or trying to change society. That's just going along, follow the leader, the same sort of thing. And I think that's very dangerous among the left when you have this critical mass looking for de desperation. It's almost sort of a predatory feeding off of the strength of the working class with your vanguard. Last word, 30 seconds. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. It was not my intention. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are illustrations which, which actually defy what, what, what you say. Uh, 
during the Spanish Civil War, the whole nation was in, in, in real dire straits, you know. And there was a very strong anarchist movement in, in, in Spain. Not only anarchists, there, there were communists also, so on and so on. Uh, uh, but people didn't follow like a herd. People participated. People, people shaped that new society in, in, in Spain. I just have to say, I think that agrees with what I said. That actual you're knowledge. Out of time. You know, you got the last word and you're done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, thank you very much for Brian, Andrew, and Vladimir, our first timer. I'm Jackson, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.